in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. So last week we talked about Onesimus. In case you weren't here, I, I rarely am the pastor who thinks like people need to really hear my sermons. But because last week was the first of a long series on Paul, we're calling it St. Paul in St. Paul. I do encourage you to go back and listen to the message from last week. You can find it on our website where you can listen to it directly. Uh, I think it plays through SoundCloud, or you could link through to your favorite podcast app. Uh, so last week we talked about Onesimus, a runaway slave or household manager, a runaway bond servant from Colossae who walked 1,500 miles on foot to go find Paul to then seek reconciliation so that he could go back and keep his sort of, at least within the sort of world that he was in, the best job that he could have. And so one of the questions I asked was, why, when there were hundreds of patrons locally, or even within 100 miles, and every single New Testament disciple was so much closer, why did he go 1,500 miles by foot to reach Paul in prison in Rome? And then I sort of dropped this bomb. I said, you know, if anyone ever tells you anything new about the Bible, you know, it's been studied for 3,000 years, depending on Old or New Testament, I guess 2,000 years. And so if anyone tells you anything new that scholars have not said before, it's probably incorrect. I would say that over and over. If someone tells you some new interpretation, watch out, get out of town. Uh, but there's something that a, a New Testament scholar and I are working on writing up, and I wanted to share it here, kind of workshop it, and think through it. Uh, so... This is new. This is the only new thing I've ever said from the pulpit. But I hope that this article will find traction and will become a part of at least the, the options that people discuss out there. I said that um, it is likely that the reason Onesimus went to Paul 1,500 miles away is that Paul himself may have, we don't, there's no smoking gun, but Paul himself, I think, is likely to have been an emancipated slave himself. And we'll get into this today. We're going to spend the whole day. I'm kind of switching my pastor for Professor Cap a little bit today. Paul himself, I think, was likely, we have a lot of New Testament evidence that he was likely an emancipated slave himself. And that this is something he sometimes leaned on for his, his identity, but that he, he hid it quite well uh, in his letters. So let's, let's get into this. Paul is a mystery. It's really hard to build a picture of who he is and why he is the way he is. It's hard to make the puzzle pieces fit until this. So who, who is Paul? Where does he come from? What do we actually know? What does the New Testament tell us about him, both his letters and then Luke's book of Acts, which is essentially a kind of biography of Paul's work? So what do we know? One of the main things we know about him uh, Paul himself tells us in Philippians 3, he says, If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Okay, so this is a kind of rap sheet. This is his resume as to who he is. Okay, so he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12, you know, respected tribes. That's where um, Saul comes from, you know, the Saul right before David, uh, King Saul. And that's probably where Paul gets his Hebrew name. Okay, the, the whole notion that you've heard of that he was, <laughs> hopefully I can remember to get back to this, the whole notion that he was Saul and then he was persecuting the church and then he came to Christ and then he converted and dropped that name and became Paul is hogwash. He was always Saul and Paul both at the same time. He had a Roman name, a three-part name. You know, like if you've ever seen Gla uh, Gladiator, how he says, you know, Maximus, Decimus, Meridius, right? Every Roman has three names. 
The last of Paul's three Roman names was Paulus. And so that's why he gets the name Paul. But his Hebrew name amongst his Jewish people, his sort of uh, family name, his, his, his main name, what we would think of as a first name, was Saul. So among Hebrews, he always goes by Saul. And among Greeks and Romans, he always goes by Paul. And the, both names always exist. He never just like cans one or adopts the other. He's always got both names. Okay, so just to clear the air there, because a lot of people think he converted and took on this name and all this stuff. Um, okay, so he says he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, he's named after Saul, King Saul, likely. He says he's a Pharisee. And then he also says he is a zealot. A lot of times we translate this wrong. We say he's full of zeal, right? So in our culture, we often just think he's on fire for God. No, no, that's not what he's saying. We'll get into that later. He's saying he is a zealot, which is a specific class of person or believer. The kind of things that he thinks politically about Rome, about Israel, he's a zealot is what he's saying. He says it over and over. He identifies as a zealot more than almost anything else in his young life before he mellowed out. All right, so he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. This term is not just saying he's a great Hebrew. He's a bona fide Hebrew. A Hebrew of Hebrews means that he is not a Hellenist. And I'll explain this. A Hebrew of Hebrews means he's not one of those Hebrews who left home and went to live among the Greeks to make more money and live in the Mediterranean and live among the Roman cities that had all these great things. And then they just dropped the Aramaic or Hebrew language and they dropped reading the Torah and they dropped all these cultural things and just picked up essentially a Greek way of life with kind of distantly being connected to Judaism. He's saying, I'm not that. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means he is very closely connected with the traditions of, of Palestine and Galilee, right? So even though he grew up elsewhere, right, he doesn't say this in Philippians, by the way, Paul never, ever admits to having been raised in Tarsus in his letters, right? So we have the whole picture. Luke tells us in the biography of Paul in Acts that he's from Tarsus, but a lot of the people in the early church probably didn't know that because Paul doesn't tell people that, because it makes him look bad, right? To be a Hebrew of Hebrews is to be from Jerusalem or Israel or something like that. So in his letters, he, when he gets to choose what to communicate, he's not saying, hey, by the way, I'm from a Roman city, and I'm a Roman citizen. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, um, and I speak Aramaic at home. It could have been Hebrew, but it was probably Aramaic, which is closely related. That's the, Jesus, or that's the language Jesus and his disciples would have chatted in around the fire. And that is Paul's mother tongue. He's saying, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am an Aramaic speaker natively. And we know that because there's a time when he gets into trouble and he stands up and he starts speaking to the crowd in Aramaic. And they're all like, whoa, this is, this is our mother tongue. This isn't Greek, which is what we thought he'd, he'd speak to us. Okay, so you're expecting when he gives his own rap sheet, not knowing what you know from Luke, when he gives his own rap sheet, you're expecting that he would be from Galilee, a similar territory to where Jesus was from, or maybe from Jerusalem. And Paul is glad to let most people believe this. In his own letters, when he talks about his own background, this is all he says. And so from his own letters, if we didn't have Luke, didn't have Acts, I mean, um, you would think he was from Galilee or Jerusalem, and he's a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. You'd have no idea that he's a Roman citizen or from Tarsus, any of that, because Paul does not share this until there are Roman guards standing over him with canes ready to beat the living daylights out of him for the things that he's doing in the name of Christ. And then he says, wait, wait, wait. Are you about to beat a Roman citizen without a trial? And all the guards are like, oops, you know, <laughs> this is badness. Citizenship in Rome meant a lot more than it means here. When Paul gets into trouble, he's able to appeal to the Caesar directly. 
That would be like if the cops pulled you over and you're like, hold on, send me to Joe Biden for a true, like, judgment. I mean, there's, there's so many people here, like, you could never get away with that. You'd, you'd be waiting until you were dead to even be in line, right? But there, citizenship was a big deal. And he was a citizen. He said, send me to the emperor and let him judge me. And that's what happened. That's the end of Paul's life is him sort of waiting to go before the emperor. So we learn from Acts, which Luke wrote. That's why I keep saying Luke. I'm not getting the book wrong, but Luke wrote Acts as well. Um, we learn that he is a Roman citizen from Tarsus. So that's interesting. Okay, so he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a zealot, which means he hates Rome. He's an insurrectionist against Rome. Hates Rome. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a zealot. But he's a Roman citizen? What? Paul doesn't tell us this, of course. But he's ashamed. He doesn't want to be a Roman citizen around the Hebrews. But he can use it to his advantage when he's in the Roman world. So it's Luke, again, that tells us, uh, like I said, Paul avoids mention, mentioning his home city. And when he has to go back, whether he's dealing with relatives or whether he's just going home for a visit or whatever, he'll kind of say, oh, I had some business to take care of in Cilicia, which is like the overall region. He's like, I had some business to take care of in Cilicia. He never says, I went home to Tarsus. He's just like, oh, I had some stuff to take care of in Cilicia, and now I'm back. Well, that's where he grew up. So he's probably going back to visit people that he knows. But he seems to hide it. He always, when he has the chance, he talks about being brought up, which, which can mean educated or it can mean raised, in Jerusalem. But he talks about being a Hebrew of Hebrew, Hebrews. So it's quite likely that many of the early disciples did not even know that Paul was a Roman citizen. Again, he avoids it because for you to be a Hebrew of Hebrews, or rather, for, sorry, for you to be a Roman citizen instead of this like bona fide Hebrews, Hebrew person, that would mean that maybe one of your ancestors left the promised land in search of better business and more money or something like this. And that's still a tension today among the Jewish community. It's still understood. Like, the real Jews are in Israel, and the ones who are in America are sort of just, you know, having an easy life and just taking it easy and making more money or whatever it is. We're the ones dealing with the terrorist attacks and all this stuff over here in Israel. So there's that same idea. Um, and so there are a ton of Jews who left, they would lose their Aramaic language, they would lose all these customs, and they were called Hellenists, and they were looked down upon. And Paul's like, I'm not that. I am a true Hebrew class act grade A. So uh, he's letting us know who he is, right? Hebrew of Hebrews. This is how you get Roman citizenship. Let me share a few ways. One of them is like being an American citizen. You're just a long-term Roman Italian person, and you pass it on through having children. Uh, second is that you purchase it for an exorbitant amount of money. Uh, at one point, Paul in Acts, I think it's 22, a tribune says to him, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. Okay, that's interesting. Paul will not ever admit this to the Hebrews. He never says this to the Jerusalem church. But when he's in trouble and he's standing before these Roman important people, they're like, hey, you know, I had to buy this for a ton of money to advance my career or whatever. And Paul's like, I was born with it. I was born with Roman citizenship. Uh, a third way that you can get citizenship is that you fulfill a 20-year bondservant or slavery obligation. Think on that for a bit. You can be Italian, right, and pass the citizenship along. You can pay for it with an exorbitant sum of money, or you can fulfill a 20-year bondservant or slavery obligation. They didn't have chattel slavery in Rome like we, do, like we did in the American South, where once a slave, always a slave, and all your descendants are slaves. They had a 20-year obligation. At the end, you were freed. 
And uh, as a way to disincentivize slaves from slitting their master's throats, because it was just slavery forever, they said, when you were bought into slavery, you were given a 20-year term. And then you and all your family, including children had during that 20 years, would leave as citizens of Rome. So the idea is, hey, don't come here and you know slit throats and, and ruin things. Serve your term faithfully, and then afterward, your life will be much better because you're, you're sort of brought into the entire Roman citizenship with all of its benefits, right? This sort of ancient version of retirement packages and pensions and all of that. They said, you know, come in, and then your kids and everyone will benefit from this for generations to come. So there was a very large incentive not to act out or disobey. So you can't be a citizen of Rome and a champion of the Jewish people. As far as we know, uh, none of the other disciples were citizens at all. Jesus certainly was not. And if he were a citizen of Rome, nobody would have followed him like they did. Because it's hard to be a prophet when you are also a citizen of what's seen as Babylon, right, or Rome. So uh, Saul, Paul, shows up. Again, he's always had both names. He shows up in Jerusalem around age 10, all of a sudden, or sorry, around age 12, and begins, begins studying under Gamaliel. These are the things we know. He shows up. He's not lived there, but now he shows up in age 12. That's how he can say he was raised there. Shows up at age 12 under Gamaliel, and that's like going to a disgraced school and then getting a full ride to Harvard or Oxford. So how does that happen? How does a Roman citizen from Tarsus get accepted into the most elite Torah school in all of Israel with only 12 boys in the whole nation of Israel accepted if he's not even from the nation of Israel? Have you ever thought of that? What's more, he clearly identifies as a zealot when he's young. One of, just, one of Jesus' disciples also calls himself a zealot. I forget which one right now. But again, that doesn't just mean, we often think it means zeal, like he's on fire for God. But it's a specific category of people who hated Rome. So some zealots, these are different things zealots would do. And I think Paul is the last one. But here's some other things that people who identified as zealots would do. They would take uncircumcised Jews, these Hellenists who are kind of like syncretistic, kind of weak Jews. They would take the Hellenists by force and, and circumcise them by force, right? So they would grab men in the street who were kind of Jewish, kind of not, and they would like take them in the corner and circumcise them. Imagine that. <laughs> or you've maybe heard of this. One group, not Paul, but one group uh, identified uh, as the Sicarii. Has anyone heard of the Sicarii? Anyone? It's probably uh, arguably the, some of the first assassins uh, as an organized class of warrior, the first assassins in human history. Um, and they were zealots who would exercise their zealotry by going out and killing Romans or killing Jews who were friendly to the Romans. They'd carry these long, uh, like, curved um, daggers with them and then slit throats out in public. And then another group, see if this sounds familiar, would kill to maintain purity in the Jewish faith. So this was the more religious, not political, but the more religious version of zealots is they would go out there to any weird sect or offshoot or anything that wasn't like classic Judaism, and they would just start killing people. Now, if you guys remember the introduction of Saul of Tarsus, that's, what we, that's how we meet him. So Stephen is out preaching the gospel. Saul shows up and organizes the stoning of this first martyr. So Paul is somehow a Roman citizen who also hates Rome. He identifies as a zealot. Like I said, it's like being Biden's friendly colleague and then somehow also present on January 6th. So it's like, this doesn't make any sense. How do you get to be a Roman citizen if you hate Rome in the first place? Um, Paul's story is this enigma. Uh, like, for instance, 
you know, this, you know, how he got the name Paul in the first place, right? A lot of the other disciples only had their Hebrew names. So how did he get that? Maybe we'll get back to that a little bit later. So why doesn't this story make sense? Hebrew of Hebrews, Roman citizen, hates Rome, Aramaic speaking from Tarsus. He's ushered right into the top school in the nation, even though he's not from the nation. And then we discovered something. The early church remembered one thing about Paul's story that he was too ashamed to mention in his letters and that Luke didn't even mention in Acts. But the church did not forget this. And for a long time, we didn't pay much attention to it because in the West, we have not had much respect for oral tradition until we realized that in a non-literary society, oral tradition actually uh, holds up a lot better and records itself well, right? So, you know, in our society, we play that telephone game as kids and we learn like just how degenerated these messages get after a few people. And so because of things like that, we don't think that oral history or tradition carries much weight. But then we realized in the rest of the world where they're not very literary, it actually holds up extremely well, even over centuries, that people can hold on to oral tradition without messing up the facts. And so, listen to this. The early church father, Jerome, records an oral tradition that the whole church knew and remembered and probably sourced even earlier from origin. See if you can see what's going on here. They say that the parents of the Apostle Paul were from Giscala, a region of Judea, and that when the whole province was devastated by the hand of Rome and the Jews scattered throughout the world, they were moved to Tarsus, a town of Cilicia. Okay, so what? Paul's parents were from Giscala, which is in Galilee, not too far from Nazareth. And the reason that this oral story is so likely true that Paul's parents were from Galilee. The reason that it's so true is that it's so unremarkable. Now, let me read this from a scholar. The likelihood that Origen or any earlier Christian invented the association of Paul's family with Giscala is remote. The town is not mentioned in the Bible. It had no connection with Benjamin. It had no associations with the Galilean ministry of Jesus. And there's no evidence that it had Christian inhabitants in it in the Byzantine period later. So what they're saying is, if you're going to invent a story about Paul, you're going to put him somewhere cool. If you're going to invent the story about where Paul is from, you're going to put him in Jerusalem or Nazareth or Bethlehem or just somewhere exciting. But instead, they put him in this no-name town that has, it's not even mentioned in the Old, Test Old Testament. It's kind of a nothing town. So it's probably true because it's not a cool place to be from. And the key there, the most important thing in that paragraph, it says that his parents were moved, as in passively. They were moved. They didn't relocate by choice. They were moved. Something happened. Some kind of a zealot revolt, we don't know for sure, but they, these towns hated Rome. These northern Galilean towns were Rome's biggest problem. And they, Rome hated to deal with these Galilean towns. They were much harder to deal with than Jerusalem itself. So when these towns would withhold taxes or start revolts or like make trouble for Rome, they would go in there and take all of the adults and round them up and then go sell them off to a major Roman hub for a 20-year service of slavery. So like if anyone started an actual revolt, they would be killed, they would be crucified. But just the regular adults who are withholding taxes or causing trouble for Rome, they would be taken, uh, you know, rounded all up and then sent them along you know, to major hubs in the empire like Tarsus or Ephesus, or Rome. They would be sold. Now again, not as African chattel slaves when we think of our own history. It would be a 20-year bond servant slavery. It's still horrible. You're still owning people, right? So it's not like it's not like it's acceptable, but it's not quite the slavery we think of when we think of our past here. 
And again, like I said, is when they'd round them up and send them into slavery, it was for a 20-year period. And in order to keep them obedient, they'd say at the end of it, you and your children get to be citizens. So please don't kill your masters, right? Go serve your 20 years, and then you and your kids get to be citizens. And we have this tradition in the early church recorded by Origen and Jerome that this is exactly what happened to Paul's parents. It's not like some, you know, who, who knows? It's like, no, this is what the church said. Paul's parents were from Giscala. They were rounded up by Rome and moved forcibly off to Tarsus. And then magically, 20 years later, eight years into this, Paul would have probably been born. Magically, 20 years later, Paul, who hates Rome, is a zealot, speaks Aramaic, and um, has Roman citizenship, shows up in Jerusalem at age 12. How does that all work out? What's fascinating is we only have this one historical piece of data about Paul's background come through outside of Acts in his own letters. Like The only thing that comes through from the ancient world that was not in Acts like or his letters was this, this oral history that Paul's parents were sold into slavery. They were removed forcibly by Rome. And not only is this the only thing we're told, but it's also the only thing that has yet made sense of his story. So a lot of people just throw their hands up like, I don't know how a Roman citizen from Tarsus could possibly get the privilege he had in the inner sanctum of like Hebrew teaching under Gamaliel. You know, I don't know how he could be a Hebrew of Hebrews and advance beyond his peers when he was a Roman citizen in Tarsus. Ah, I'm just going to throw my hands up and give up. But imagine this. Your parents were Roman dissidents and got sold into slavery. But in defiance of Rome, yeah, they served their, their portion, they served their time, but they still raised their kids speaking Aramaic, and they taught him the Torah, and they taught him to hate Rome, and they taught him when you're 12 and you're, you've got citizenship and you're ready, you go back to Jerusalem and you be a zealot, and you start showing Rome what's up. Now, does that make sense of how he gets to go study under the most celebrated teacher in Rome and why he speaks Aramaic and why he's a citizen yet he hates Rome. It makes just so much better sense of so much of his story. So he's 12. He shows up in Jerusalem. He's an absolute star, speaks Aramaic as his mother tongue, which is unheard of if you're from the Mediterranean. He knows the Torah in Hebrew and he's just a star. So they're like, yeah, usher this kid in. He shows up. He's very influenced by the zealots. He has a lot of reasons to hate Rome. Right? He's been raised as a slave. He would have, if, there were, if this is true, if I'm right, which I think I am, but if I'm right, he would have branding and tattooing on his body, the marks of the master who owns him. And he shows up in Rome, or sorry, shows up in Jerusalem. He has this blistering hatred of Rome, yet he is this citizen. He'd have this branding, this tattooing. And whatever he did, he could not mention Tarsus or his upbringing because it would keep him from advancing beyond his contemporaries, right? Already we know that being from Tarsus, being a Roman citizen, that'll keep you out of the inner rings. So that's something that around Hebrews, he might not be willing to just share a lot, right? You want to show up and you want to be a star? Maybe don't tell people you're from another city or that you're a Roman citizen. You want to be a local. So not only do I think does this explain Paul's background in a way that no other background does as satisfyingly, it also makes much more sense of the things that he talks about and the way that he talks. It's also the only thing that takes into account the only oral history we have about him. But think of this. This makes a lot of sense in terms of what Paul talks about. Paul talks about themes of slavery so much more than the other disciples. It's almost 
It's almost funny. Uh, the other disciples, the other writers of the New Testament don't even mention issues of adoption, slavery, bondage. Like, they don't even bring this up. But that's all Paul can talk about. He, he cannot stop talking about it. It's like his entire mental toolbox of imagination is centered around the concepts of slavery, adoption, slavery, bondage to sin, freedom, no longer being slaves, emancipation. Uh, he even uses specific slave terms, like he talks about a, a pedagogue, right? The law was a pedagogue meant to bring us to grace. And that's a pedagogue was a specific slave, and his specific job was to lead the master's children to school every day and kind of be a tutor to them. Uh, and I couldn't help but thinking, I have no evidence for this, but I'm like, was Paul's father a pedagogue? Was, I don't know. Like, I, what, why does he mention this specific term? Maybe not. But that's a specific slave role. And he's just constantly talking about slavery. So you've got external evidence. The early church remembers that he was sold into slavery. Uh, and then you have all of these other you know, Roman things that kind of fit the bill. It fits Paul's resume. But then you have all of this internal evidence that Paul will not shut up about slavery ever. He just, it's all he talks about is slavery. Paul wrote a quarter of the New Testament, but about 97% of the slave language comes from him. Why might that be? Why does Paul, unlike all the others, open his letters almost always with the same three words? He says, Paulos, Dulos, Christos. Paul, slave of Christ. Paul, slave of Christ. It's like he still identifies as a slave, but his master is now Christ. No one else uses the name slave. It's like we just sort of accept this as normal. What if it's not normal? What if Paul is still saying, I'm a slave of Christ, I'm a slave of Christ, not a servant, not a, you know, a worker, you know, none of that. Like, what if he's still, his concept of himself is as a slave, but now his master is Christ. And finally, when Paul says at the end of Galatians that he carries the stigmata of Christ on his body, he says he carries the marks of Christ on his body, a lot of people are like, eh. I don't know what that means. You know, it's probably the scars. You know, Paul's been beat up a lot for his ministry. So it's probably the scars of Christ that he's talking about. But what's interesting is he actually wrote that book before almost every other work. He'd maybe been beat up once or twice. He had not been, like, raked over the coals like he had over his whole career. So he would not have gathered many scars by that time. And what's interesting is Greek has a lot of words for scars, and stigmata is not one of them. What stigmata actually means... It's the first definition in the ancient Greek dictionaries, if you look it up. The first definition is branding or tattooing for slaves. So to carry a stigmata on you was normally a brand or a tattoo that marked who's, who your owner was. So it's, it's still possible. He could be saying, hey, these scars that I've gotten from getting beat up, these are kind of a branding or tattooing showing who my real master is, who is Christ. It's possible. I think what's more likely is, given all this other evidence and how much he talks about slave stuff, is that, you know, if he's this Roman citizen, again, everything I've said before, is that he would have had branding on his body, right, where they heat up this piece of metal and they push it into your thigh or your shoulder when you're a kid to, you know, to brand you as someone's property. It's likely that he would have had these stigmata on his body his whole life. But now, when he feels those scars or sees the tattoos, he recognizes that it's not his former master who owns him, but it's Christ who owns him, and he kind of reassociates those scars as being a servant or a slave of Christ. It's really interesting that he uses that word stigmata rather than scars. There's four or five words for scars. He chooses stigmata, which is a slave brand. Um, let's see here. So we began this series because when we think of Paul, we so often think of this brain on a stick, this genius, which he is. He's one of the smartest people in the ancient world, bar none. 
probably the most influential Christian who's ever lived, uh, you know, not counting Jesus because he's the founder, right? Um, <laughs> was Jesus a Christian? Well, no, because he is Christ, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, he's the most influential Christian who's ever lived. And we think of his intellectual creativity, right? Justified by faith, not by works. We think of Romans, whatever. Uh, and that's so good. That's his teaching. But who is Paul? What is the man Paul like? How does this genius, obsessed with the language of slavery, one who hides his Roman citizenship around Hebrews, but then uses it to his advantage in Rome, how does this guy tick? And how does he think? How is it that this person, previously a zealot, given to hunting and killing Christians, then becomes the foremost Christian in most of history? And not only that, but he becomes a wonderful leader, and even such a warm leader, and an advocate to the weak, and an advocate to the helper. And like we talked about last week, and I'll close with this so the way it can set up. We talked about this last week. When Onesimus chooses who he will run to, to beg for reconciliation, that he could go back to his master and have, you know, he could be a slave sort of in this butler class. He could be a butler in a mansion rather than a poor peasant working out under the sun for 12 hours a day. He does not choose to go to any of the disciples. You know, the Apostle John was in Ephesus 100 miles away. Why doesn't he go to him? Why doesn't he go to any rich local? He doesn't. He, he walks 1,500 miles to Rome to visit with Paul. And when we look at all of the evidence that we've just talked about, Paul's name, the fact that he's a Roman citizen even though he hated Rome, that he hid his background, all of these things, plus his obsession with slavery, language, when you look at Onesimus' story in that light, it becomes really interesting, and you start to wonder, ah, oh, maybe Onesimus walked 1,500 miles to get to Paul in prison because he knew that Paul might have a kind of sympathy and empathy for him that the other disciples and other people wouldn't because Paul, maybe more than any of them, knew what it was like to be an owned person. Paul knew what it was like to be a slave. And then Paul steps in, and he's not callous, and he's not rude. And in fact, he writes one of the most soaring, beautiful letters from the ancient world saying, accept this man back, but free him, right? Not as a slave anymore, but as a Christian brother. And as we know from church history, that same Onesimus likely goes on to be the bishop of Ephesus about 20 or 30 years later. So we don't know for sure, but it's likely that Philemon, the you know, receiver of this letter, took the advice from Paul freed him, received him back as an equal brother, which is just ridiculous within the context of the ancient world. But he received him back as a free brother. And 20 or 30 years later, right next door, the bishop that Timothy raises up is named Onesimus. You can't know for sure that it's the same one, but it's likely the very same person. That's why the letter survived in the first place. So I wanted to take this week to be a little bit more of my professor self than the pastor, because I wanted to lay this foundation for the man Paul, right? We don't know a ton about his life, but I wanted to lay that foundation because I think without seeing Paul coming from that place, if we just see them as this, as this like privileged, rich Jew who's like had the best education his whole life and then all he cares about is faith and justification, that's not Paul, right? That's, that's the Paul that like Luther and maybe other you know, evangelical tradition will sometimes paint. I think this is the man Paul. I think starting with Philemon and starting with his background, likely of being an owned person who was then emancipated later, a murderous, hateful heart who then comes to know the grace of Jesus and advocates for the weak and advocates for those who are in his same position. That, I think, is the real Paul. So I wanted to spend this week going through that so that then when we get into his teachings, it will make sense. It will be based on his life 
rather than just some like brain on a stick, which is how we treat Paul. So with that, uh, thank you guys for a little bit different week this week as I lay that foundation. Uh, keep that in mind. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll dive back into his teachings next week. I'll pray to close us, and then I'll invite you guys downstairs. Father, we thank you for this week that we can um, have enough clues in terms of Paul's background, his, his citizenship, his hatred for Rome, yet his belonging to it. Uh, we just thank you for these early church sources and things that point us in direction that say that Paul's parents were enslaved and that he may have been a citizen because of that. Um, we pray that we would be able to see his teaching, not just as coming from a brain on a stick, but being someone who was deeply wounded and had gone through a lot of pain, but then grew up to know your grace and to help others in the same situation. We just pray you'd open our hearts and minds to learn from Paul in these next weeks and pray that you'd be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.